Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's Remote Education Program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History as a publicly available podcast so that my TA Rowan can have her tuition paid by the school while she sits here and plays rhythm games. Mm hmm. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Say it again. Uh huh. <laughs> Your mic has really slid down there. Hold on. I don't know why. Ooh. <laughs> okay, I'm just messing with it at this point. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a beautiful day here, and um, we just... Actually, in the episode that'll come out after this one, we just reviewed some root beers and stuff. So, you have that to look forward to when the next episode drops. Today, we're going to talk about the next chapter of... Eddie Campbell and... Alan Moore. Alan Moore. I was struggling with his name for a second. Uh, They're classic from hell. Now, I have had a few questions from people about things like, what is the status of the Miskatonic Manticores? Uh, We are still restructuring. It turns out that um, we we need help. (laughs) We need Gaming Jesus. Are there any Norse gods associated with gaming? I might need to invoke them. I need to check. In fact, I need multiple pantheons involved in this process. Um, first of all, I'm just going to say this. If you're playing a tank role and you're afraid to take damage, you're in the wrong role. I'm looking at you, Hammonds. Oh, yeah. Hammonds and, strangely, hogs, even though they have their own healing. So, anyway, there will be more to come on that in the future. Also, uh, I, I apologize if I cough some. I don't know what it is. Uh, it is spring here at Miskatonic campus, so it may be my allergies. It may be that half cup of cyanide I'm drinking daily. Um, it's good for you, according to her. Yeah, my dietician said, uh, you know, that recent medical discoveries have shown that there are good and bad cyanides, and I shouldn't think about them all like the movies, so she has me drinking half a cup of cyanide a day. And I have to say, it's playing havoc with my insides. Maybe it's something else. Um, I mean, I mean, fortunately, my lifelong regiment of ingesting things that should kill a bull elephant uh, seemed to make me resistant. Um, but, but it ha- you know, I've done some follow-up reading on the internet, and I'm not finding any references to good cyanides. I'm beginning to be concerned that she may not have my best interest entirely at heart. Oh, don't think that about her. She means the best. Uh, You're right. You're right. I mean, this is probably just some sort of misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. But I am going to talk to her about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, yeah, it's just... mm, doesn't settle well. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's jump into From Hell. Love is Enough. It, It sounds like a cheesy song title, doesn't it? It does. Uh, as usual, Alan Moore has some um, quotes at the beginning of the chapter. I don't read them each chapter. He loves his quotes. He does, and sometimes I think they're just pretentious bullshit. Um, a- a- as I think they are at this point. I mean, for example, he has a quote from Adolf Hitler. And then Emily Dickinson below that. You know, in any time you're putting next to each other Adolf Hitler and Emily Dickinson... You're being you're, pretentious. Yeah, that's kind of my feeling. And Alan Moore likes to fuck with people. I mean, in, in this series, he fucks with people. You know, he says things that he kind of believes, but not really. And yeah, 
but we'll get to all that. We're going to jump in. There's a lot of meat in here, and I want to say up front that while we talk about the plot events and we talk about how they're drawn from the actual history of the case of Jack the Ripper and Whitechapel, we need to separate from how the actual events in history are used from the meaning. And he accomplishes this in part by being selective and adding a few creative elements in, although sometimes drawn from actual history. Now, we have a major theme that's existed, which is this sort of birth of the 20th century uh, that is symbolically held by the Jack the Ripper murders. He has taken these series of these violent crimes against women, the sensationalism of the crimes by the media, the presence of this big industrial city, and used it as a symbol for the birth of the 20th century. But now a counter sort of thread comes in here. Well, not counter, because it doesn't nullify it. But we have a complementary thread that comes in with a related meaning, which is the connection between the hell of the urban world and the purity of the natural world. And we're going to talk about that as we go through here a little bit. Now, we open up the chapter with... What looks to be a really pleasant scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a simple bedroom. There's a man and woman lying in bed together. They're snuggling. She gets up and gets ready for work. And we find out that it is Mary Kelly. Mm. The one who kind of set all this in motion. The one-time model for Siskert. Who knew about the illegitimate royal baby. And sort of gathered up her friends as the four horrors of the apocalypse. And we have this kind of really beautiful scene where she's, you know, getting up ready for work and he compliments her and she says, you know, what are you trying to do? And he says this and he says, no, I'm kind of hoping to get you back into bed for a quickie before you go. And she says, no, I'm working now. You can't afford me. (laughs) (laughs) Because she's going out to prostitute. Mm -hmm. But, But part of the point here is that we've seen how dreadful their lives are in a lot of ways. And we've seen some pretty ugly things here in Whitechapel. And there's no reason to believe that's an extreme exaggeration. But Moore is trying to balance it out a little bit and say, yes, Whitechapel was a rough environment. Yes, these women had hard lives. And there's a lot to pity in them. But they were real people. And... Some of them did find some normalcy and joy in their lives. And part of this, I suspect, was he hit a point where he was reading the articles of the time. And frankly, there were people writing articles saying things like, well, we don't know who this murderer is, but killing off some whores over there in the East End sounds like a good idea. You know, hey, they're just scum anyway. They don't do any good in society. And that kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think Moore is trying to balance that view out a little bit and saying, these are people and their lives may be hard. Some of them may live in squalor, but they're capable of joy and relationships and all that. And yes, some of them are very tragic, but we shouldn't treat them like they're some sort of diseased cattle that is a problem for society to deal with. We have to deal with them as people. 
And I know that may sound like I'm reading a lot into it, but I think if you look carefully at the tones created and everything that's done, I think you'll find that it's hard to argue there is another choice for such a conscious and obvious tonal decision and scene inclusion. So she goes on to the pub to meet up with her friends, and we have a kind of transition from that into a fairly graphical scene of inflagrante uh, by somebody that we find out is Catherine Eddowes. Now, Catherine Eddowes, uh, also sometimes just called Kate Eddowes, uh, is sitting there with her common-law boyfriend, and they make a decision that sounds here like it's a one-off decision, but in fact they did it every year, that they would leave London and go to the county of Kent to pick hops. They would sleep in a barn, they had friends, and they'd sort of get out into the world. And presumably, it's a very pleasant season to do that, and then when hop picking season was over, they'd come back. Because back then they didn't have big combine harvesters and all that. So, as she leaves London, she's leaving somewhere for safety. And she's later going to come back to London, and returning to London is entering this place of danger. This is part of this theme that's being added about how the natural world is safe. Now remember, this isn't just a sort of blind imagery of cities bad, cities stink. Remember, the, the city is also built by the Freemasons. We have the whole chapter dedicated to gold being driven around by Netley with all these Freemason uh, uh, statues and uh, buildings and uh, uh, artifacts of their architecture in the city. So they're literally leaving kind of perdition, hell, for heaven and then returning to hell, which will signal her death. From there, we transition over to Long Liz, Elizabeth Stride. She was a tall woman, sometimes called Long Liz, and she goes into her rooms to find her sort of common-law husband there, and he's pissed because she went out for a drink, which we saw a few pages earlier with Mary Kelly. Now, if you remember, Elizabeth Stride uh, was an immigrant from Sweden, she lived in destitution a lot of her time in London. She was a prostitute, like the other girls. She had been a prostitute in in uh, Sweden as well. And found some stability, but could not kick the drink. In fact, uh, she had a very tumultuous relationship with her common-law husband. Because he, at one point, trying to get her to stop drinking, actually locked her up in the rooms and imprisoned her. Damn. Kidnapped her. She called the cops on him. And finally, by this point, he's had it. And this is a few days before her death. He throws her out and even throws her clothes into the street. Now, reports of people that knew her that were surfaced by the newspaper said that she often spoke fondly of the farm she grew up on in Sweden and wanting to go back there. And she has a brief memory flash here of herself as a young girl running through some sort of grass uh, back in Sweden. Aww. And Ellen Moore copies that here, often having her talk about how she wishes she was back home. 
as well as Mary Kelly, of course, if you remember back when she was on the boat with Siskert, she talks about wishing she was back in Ireland, despite how the Irish are treated by the British. And these things will come back up, because Ireland, like Sweden here, is being represented as rural and very un-British in that regard, or at least un-London. As the story goes on, we briefly see uh, Prince Albert again. It's not... He seems really torn up about these murders in Whitechapel, even though he's off in Scotland. And I think that is Alan Moore's way of saying that he knows there's a connection between uh, his secret marriage and what's happening in Whitechapel. Because otherwise, you wouldn't think he'd be that affected by it. Uh, we He's also with somebody who appears to be a sort of perhaps semi-romantic partner. Uh, at least in Alan Moore's world, Prince Albert swung both ways. Clearly. <laughs> We're going to skip some pages. I do want to point out at the bottom of page 11, chapter 8 here, there is a just sort of added scene uh, with no dialogue, drawn by Eddie Campbell. And there are these street boys with a basket who've put birdseed down and a rope connected to the basket, and they're trying to capture pigeons. Probably to eat them. And that gives you an idea of the destitution involved. They may be sky rats, but you're not supposed to eat them, man. And they are sky rats. Wow, you're really going to town on that rhythm game. <laughs> This is what she does with Miskatonic's money, folks. She plays rhythm games when she should be helping me with the class. Someone else's fault for hiring me. It, I sign your time cards! <laughs> as well as several, as well as one other person's, because my uh, uh, supervisor has gone missing. But that's another issue. We'll talk about that some other time. Uh, CIA came around to interview me the other day about that, by the way. And I'm like, why is the CIA involved in trying to find Dr. Feckett? And they just told me to mind my business and answer their questions. So, I guess we'll find out more about that later. Huh? Mm -hmm. Anyway, we jump around some more. Mary Kelly runs into Aberline using her pseudonym at the bar. Aberline goes through reports back in the office. He's reading through the coroner reports. Now, th there, is a, there are a few things I want to point out about the coroner's report here. Now, the coroner... Cor corridor. Blah, 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 blah. He's not a doorway, sir. Do you know that for a fact? No. I mean, there could be a metaphysical reality going on here. It is freaking Alan Moore. True, true, true. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the coroner uh, initially reported that the first murder was done by somebody with extreme medical skill. However, the coroner, coroner also had... A agenda. He had a story about how this American had been around wanting to buy uteruses for medical schools. What? And yeah, I don't know if it's true. And he had this he, he had come up with this elaborate theory, and if memory serves, he actually had uh some sort of success with postulating this theory related to other crimes in the past. But basically he didn't think it was a doctor doing it. He thought it was medical students killing women to steal organs for medical research because they couldn't afford them through legitimate channels. Medical students have never been that desperate to pass. Uh, not so much that they go out and kill people like that. No, I don't mm -hmm. think. Um, 
But that was his theory. Now, he had a bias and agenda here. Uh, other investigations of later ones indicated that it didn't require that much skill, and it looked more like somebody was just going around randomly butchering. So some people have tried to resolve these two things by saying, well, in this crime they had they took their time, and this one they were enraged. And then, you know, these sorts of excuses. That's, that, that's not how serial killers work. So Moore introduces some of his own mechanisms to explain these discrepancies, uh, which we'll see later on. And it just... <laughs> One of my most amusing bits here is that he's going through... Aberline's going through the papers, and he hits the uh, part about the so-called leather apron and goes, fucking thick. <laughs> uh, and indeed, historically, we know Aberline was dismissive of the sort of attempts to solve the case with no real investigation into a legitimate, you know, possibility. Just trying to blame people to blame someone. Right. And, and to solve the case and get a promotion. Which, by the way, back then, I don't know if you know this, when you solved cases, especially if you got them done quick, and based on the notoriety of the case, you got financial bonuses. Oh, great. Right. So, I mean, there was added incentive there. We get a great page here. This is one of my favorite pages. Uh, it is Netley, he, the, the Hanson cab driver. He's sitting around before he goes out with, to take Gull on his murderous escapades. And he's viewing pornography and drinking straight liquor and just pathetic. He, he's looking at a porn magazine, drinking liquor, and crying. This, his attempts to climb the social ladder and get favor have led to this hell. And that's, of course, part of the joke of From Hell. The title is From Hell, taken from, you know, the Jack the Ripper letter to the media. But they're, it's not from hell, it is hell. That is the Alan Moore sort of dark joke here mm -hmm. that Goal is turning London into hell itself. Mm -hmm. And the future will be hell. So Netley gets dressed, takes Goal out. Goal uh, directs him to stop by a Freemason social club where he meets with Sir Charles, the superintendent of the police, who basically tells Goal, this has to stop. To which Gull basically says, Lol, what? <laughs> Have a grape. Because <laughs> he's carrying damn grapes around. Of course he is. <sighs> um, and basically looks at him and goes, Eh, there'll just be a few more. Tell me if you see Mary Kelly. I'm having trouble finding her. <laughs> and then just walks out like, Bitch. <laughs> and Sir Charles is just sitting there like, Oh, fuck, this is going to end my career. <laughs> As it should. And, and it did, in fact, damage his career. I, I don't know if it's in here anywhere. Or, um, as I continue reviewing the chapters, I'll, I'll see if I see it. But, I mean, the newspapers were making fun of them. You know, in fact, there was a publicity stunt where uh, they he attempted to show off these tracking dogs they were going to use to try to find the murder, taking them around Whitechapel, and the dogs kind of went crazy at the demonstration in front of the reporters. 
And so soon there were cartoons in all the newspapers with dogs running circles around Sir Charles and descriptions mocking him. Like they can't, you know, if a dog can run circles around him, clearly that's why Jack the Ripper can. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, in this story, the police are in on it. And we'll see more involvement from police down the line here in just a minute. Uh, as well as the edict coming from Queen Victoria herself. In actual history, uh, Queen Victoria was complaining to the authorities, uh, the Secretary of the Interior and the police, and in fact sending them letters saying, why can't we put more police in Whitechapel? Why can't we solve this by flooding the streets with cops 24-7? Yeah, people really wanted to get this solved high up and high down. Right. I mean, this was leading people to question the security of the empire if London couldn't be secured. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not an image your regent wants. No. No, no, no. Um, so people may not have had a lot of sympathy for women being murdered in Whitechapel, but somebody seamlessly acting like a ghost wandering around murdering people grotesquely doesn't make anybody feel safe. Yeah. Even if they don't care about the people who are being murdered. Exactly. Exactly. It's the idea of what is happening. So as we go on, uh, we we laugh, last left Kate Eddowes, Catherine Eddowes, uh, wandering around. She's been thrown out of her house. She gets some drink from somewhere and basically passes out in the street. The police arrest her. And th- there is some historical confusion here about a pawn ticket. And that the pawn ticket is for, you know, somebody named Mary Kelly. And there's some confusion about all that. The actual uh, uh, details are a little more involved. I found this on the web. Oh, shut up, Siri. The actual details are that her common... That Catherine Eddowes, common-law husband, um, his net last name was Kelly. Oh. And she would sometimes refer to herself with the last name of Kelly. She had a pawn ticket, not for Mary Kelly, but for Kelly, the husband who pawned his boots. She did, however, not want to give the police her real name and have it on record. So they were throwing her in the drunk tank and she gave her name as Mary Kelly. Uh, Mary being a super common name. So so good luck putting that on a record. So as soon as she's booked, this sergeant, mm-hmm. who has been told he's apparently a Freemason and connected to the other Freemasons that are running things, he knows that they're looking for a Mary Kelly, so he books it to tell his superiors. This is how the Catherine Eddowes who has no connection to the Four Horrors of the Apocalypse, ends up, in this story at least, ending up as one of the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper because Dr. Gull thinks he's about to kill Mary Kelly, who he hasn't been able to find. And he thinks he's about to be done, and everything's over. Now, while this is happening, the real Mary Kelly is going down to old Nichols' place to find the Nichols gang and give them the money they're owed so they'll back off the murder. She thinks they're the ones murdering her friends. 
Polly Nichols, for example. And they take the money and just look at her and go, wasn't us. Night. And they leave. And in a great piece of art from Eddie Campbell, we have this huge black panel at the bottom. And she's just this little figure of some spare pieces of white surrounded by all this black. She's mm-hmm. completely overwhelmed by this despair. Her friends are being murdered. It doesn't seem like it could be coincidence. And she thought she was about to get rid of the people who were killing them. And she finds out now that she doesn't even know who was doing it. And she's still in danger. Probably. Maybe. She doesn't know. But of course she has to be concerned that way. Don't mind the ravens in the background, folks. They just like to pick off the kills after the dogs and the quad sometimes. Yeah, I think they're working together now. It's getting kind of concerning. I don't know. I kind of like the ravens. You don't? I do. I'm I'm just concerned for my own safety. I mean, they do a better job of cleanup than the custodial crew do. True. Yeah. Um, And they pick the bones clean and, you know, give something nice for the hounds to chew on for a while. True, true, true. I mean, the custodians just carried the bones off. Yeah. You know, I like to see the dogs enjoying them. Yeah, true, true. Um, So as the story goes on, we get more details from history. I'm not going to go over each and every bit. You can enjoy that, reading it for yourself if you ever choose to. Uh, But Netley, of course, finds Elizabeth Stride first. He gives her a flower, and she ends up meeting up with Gull, but she does not like the grapes. She can taste the laudlum on the grapes and knows something is wrong. But she takes him to a little space outside a, a meeting house. Now, there is some interesting details of history about this meeting house and the timing involved. Um, several people saw Elizabeth Stride uh, with different figures that day. Uh, several men during the day were documented with her. We don't have names for them. We only have descriptions by things like what kind of hats they wore. Just before the estimated time of murder, a policeman actually did see her with somebody that he's described as having a hard felt hat right outside the courtyard she was killed in. And the body was left. But the cop and the cop said he was carrying a large case, hard case that could carry tools in it, but he didn't see anything suspicious and just walked on. Of course. She was killed somewhere around 1 a.m. And the meeting house is the, or was, the International Working Men's Educational Club. It was a socialist club, almost entirely Jewish, and they were in there when the murder happened, presumably. And it was a somebody working there who found the body. That's going to make you feel bad. Right. And uh, it was somebody coming through there who some people believe interrupted the murder. Now, in the story here, because she won't eat the laudlum grapes, she tries to run. And because of Dr. Gold's advanced uh, health problems which he needs them to eat the laudlum grapes to be weak enough for him to personally kill, Netley has to get involved. He grabs her, holds her down, and holds her still for a goal to slit her throat. Now, 
there is an alteration between what people believe happened in real history and the story here. Now, she was not mutilated after death. According to history, uh, the most prevalent theory is that somebody was coming through in a two-wheeled vehicle, and somebody actually did around that time, uh, and the theory is that the murderer was interrupted. Mm-hmm, and that the reason there was a second... Uh, sorry, go ahead. Because most serial killers don't change their MO like that. Right. And the belief is the reason there was a second murder is that they were so enraged at not getting to finish it correctly that they went out to find another victim. Mm-hmm. Here, they're interrupted because a police constable who's involved with the Freemasons shows up to say, Hey, I know where Mary Kelly is. Want to kill a bitch? Come on, I'll show you. Come on, gotta hurry. Come on, let's go. You know, because, uh, you know, he's eager to get a promotion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like in the real world today, covering up cop murders is uh, good for your career as a cop. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm sorry about that. There are perfectly good police in the world, uh, including in the U.S., but dear Lord, there's some bad ones too. Um, anyway, around this time, Catherine Eddowes is being released. And she leaves and is tracked down by Netley and Gull, where she is basically leapt upon. Gull leaps out of the carriage. Now, part of what I love about this is the action is generally so restrained in this. And now we get to see Eddie Campbell drawing this extreme action from this just psychotically motivated Dr. Gull. Look at the action as he grabs her and murders her here. You can really feel the emotion, too. Oh, yeah, and it is Just the pure crazy. And it is is the most bloody, brutal scene to date. The most graphic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is why I like the black and white more than the colored. I don't think adding red to this makes it more gruesome. Yeah. I think it takes away from the starkness of it. Plus, like I said, the color drop felt really shoddy. Yeah, it didn't. I didn't care for it either. But I don't think you could. I think the vision was black and white, and I think coloring things meant to be black and white mm-hmm. don't work. Some things just don't need a pro- need improving visually. Right. So while in history, there's a very good case that the Jack Ripper went to kill uh, Eddowes because he 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 was frustrated by the. Uh, aborted evisceration of Liz Stride. Here, Gull is triumphant. He smears the blood over his face, holds up organs he's ripped out in the bloody knife, and looks up into the sky and sees, and this was great research detail on the part of Alan Moore, the actual skyscraper that will be at that point where Catherine Eddowes' body was found by the 1980s. A hundred years later. And that's what he's doing. He's viewing a hundred years into the future, basically. Mm-hmm. The century that he created. And he's exultant. He's looking at this great architecture that he, the Freemason, you know, the servant of the Godhead, the prophet of the 20th century, has helped create. And he's blown away by it. But exultant. He's happy. And then he goes out and decides to stop and write the graffiti on the wall uh, that famously was washed off the wall uh, about the Jews 
with references to Freemasons. In fact, historically, it's not really clear that the actual Jack the Ripper wrote that. Somebody else may have come along and done that. It's highly contentious. A lot of people think it was another case of uh, the fake letter from a news reporter. It, it's certainly possible. Uh, it certainly is weird that he would create a scene trophy like this when he didn't at any of the others. Yeah, I just think it has to be fake because he... he and after this, there still was no... Right. And there is a sort of Freemasonry reference in here. Some people believe that, uh, an actual history, that... And I'm sorry I keep saying actual history, but I am trying to distinguish the story from history. That because of Freemason interpretable phrases in it, that the police washed it off just to not muddy the water with Freemason associations. Mm -hmm. Which, frankly might have actually been a good decision, especially if they had good reason to think that it wasn't actually Jack the Ripper. It might have just complicated the investigation for no good reason. Yeah. But here, it is actually written by Gull. And what it says is, the Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. Um, and that is a... A, it could just be random graffiti... But when I say a Freemason association, it some people believe it's a reference to a story that the Freemasons uh, hold in high esteem about basically the first architect of God and how they were treated by other Jews. It's a long story. I don't want to go into a lot of detail here on. Um, but here, the cleaning up of the graffiti is just a pure cover-up. Historically, it may have just been random graffiti found nearby. Mm -hmm. And then in our final scenes, Mary Kelly finally comes home to her, you know, spouse. And he's worried sick because he heard that Mary Kelly got killed. Mm -hmm. And she now realizes she's being hunted. Whoever killed her friends is out to get her. Mm -hmm. Now... I'm going to reiterate a couple of important points here as we wrap this up. Uh, we now have this major theme that not only is gold building the future, not only is he creating hell on earth, but that there is a sort of anti-hell, a heaven, and that's the natural world and farms and where people can live. Now, Alan Moore himself did move out of London to a Scottish castle in the middle of nowhere. My understanding is Scottish castles are not hard to buy if you have money because there are a lot of landed families without money these days and they're ridiculously expensive to maintain. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe he on some level feels like this. I don't know. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, the Miskatonic uh, maintenance crews sometimes drive their trucks awfully close to the academia buildings. Yeah, someone really needs to take their license away. You know, I think the worst of it is when they load them up with the stuff from the science building to take them to the containment facility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they just don't tie those tarps down very well. Yeah, one of these days they're going to have to pay for something. Yeah, really. Anyway, so that, that natural world versus industrial world, world of God versus world of man... Uh, it's going to come into play again. And as we get more into that towards the end of the series, this idea of Gull's Godhead 
versus an actual god, an actual cosmic just entity of some kind. Because I don't think Moore is talking about God in a Judeo-Christian sense. Uh, we'll come into play more. Okay. So, any parting words, Rowan? No. No? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I feel like we have to have a laugh at the end of an episode oh, about From Hell. Yeah, because From Hell is just depressing. But so good. Uh-huh. Uh So I want all of you to go out and find something that makes you laugh. Mm -hmm. And we'll see you back here again. Keep reading comics. Bye.